Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad to have you with us. <laughs> Good morning, Juan and Ron. I like how that works. Emma, welcome. Glad you joined the coffee club at least for one day. And I have to agree with you, Emma, to uh, Luke, Red Bull, yuck. <laughs> Interesting. Your stomach can handle Red Bull better than coffee. Well, all right then. Do what you got to do. Glad you're with us. We are studying through the book of Hebrews, and today we are going to finish chapter two, I think. <laughs> no, actually, yesterday was a worthwhile discussion. I think to have that, uh, that to think well through these hard questions is worth it. We're not on any agenda, any schedule here, so uh, I think that was worthwhile. I got a couple of uh, comments offline, direct messages, and I can tell you all are thinking carefully about the word, and I love that. As a teacher, there's nothing better than for my students to set aside their assumptions and the, the presuppositions they come to a text with and say, okay, but what is the Bible actually saying? And I'm going to submit my thinking and my behavior to what the word of God actually says, even if it conflicts with prior held views. And, I, and you guys do that, and I love that. So uh, I'm encouraged. Thank you all for being uh, being part of this and, and studying together. A couple quick announcements. Number one, uh, remember uh, next week, starting next week on Monday, uh, we'll move this back two hours. Uh, so Emma, it won't even be tea time in UK, right? Uh, is that where you're at? It'll be almost dinner time. Anyway, uh, it'll be 11.30 Eastern starting next Monday. And secondly, our Cross to Crown sale is still going on. We have loads of uh, John Riesinger books and some others for $1 plus shipping. Uh, unfortunately, that's only for the, uh, the, the U.S., but uh, for those of you here in the States, uh, take advantage of those while supplies last. Uh, good morning, Keith. Glad that you are with us as well. Okay, so let's, uh, let's head into Chapter 2. And I'm not going to review everything, which is my tendency, just so that you are always aware of the context, because you know me, I want us to be committed to the context. And sometimes I can uh, repeat the context so much that you get it, but you're like, let's move on, let's move on. Um, our home fellowship has started mocking me now that, you know, we're studying through the book of Acts, and uh, they they mock me like, you know, how often are we going to go back to Genesis 1-1 <laughs> to set the entire context for Acts? And I, I receive that. I'll mock, me, mock away. That means you're getting it. All right. So Hebrews 2, verse 14. I need another sip of coffee. Ah, no, oh, that's so good. So much better than Red Bull. All right. He says this. Therefore. Now, you know what I'm tempted to do with that word, therefore, don't you? Whenever you see therefore, you need to go back and say, what is he concluding? Therefore is a conclusion indicator. I've been saying this, therefore this. But I'm going to trust that if you want to go back and get that uh, leading up part, you'll, you'll watch previous videos. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. Now, that's what we've been discussing. He joined us in humanity. The children, that's referring back to his Isaiah quote. 
the children, you and me, and, and especially, you know, the original context here is the uh, first century uh, Christians who had converted from Judaism. Since the children are human, since we have flesh and blood, he himself, the son, the heir of the world, the Messiah, partook of flesh and blood. Now, we know this as Christians, this is Christianity 101, but don't let your familiarity with that concept prevent you from being in awe. The God of the universe joined the human race forever. You realize that when Jesus ascended, he didn't set his humanity, didn't set his body on the backside of the moon as he went on up to heaven. Jesus is human forever. That's, that's mind-boggling. Isn't that crazy? The, the God we're going to see forever is the one who became human. Why? That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, I've been trying to get you to see that I, I think a, a significant argument that the Jews were making to these former Jews, who are now Christians, was something about the impropriety of the Messiah dying. So I think, and, and, and the reason I keep saying I think, and I suppose this, is because we don't know for sure all that's going on. We, we have to ask the question, why did the writer of Hebrews decide to write these things? So often we think that the Bible is just this theology book. It's not. This author is writing to real people who are in a particular situation. And we don't know all the situation, and we're trying to discern that from what he said. Why would he, why would he write down the things he did? Why would he argue for these things? And it makes most sense to me, I could be wrong, but it makes most sense to me that he has to uh, teach his audience why it was fitting for the Messiah to die. That's the word he used earlier in chapter 2. It was fitting for God to bring the, the champion of our salvation to glory through suffering, through the suffering of death. So here I think he's giving us more explanation of why this is appropriate. He took on flesh so that through death, so Jesus, through his own death, might render powerless the one who had the power of death. Just to go back to the discussion we were having the other day, this death isn't spiritual death, is it? Do we think that Jesus died spiritually? That seems like a blasphemous, blasphemous thought to me. No, this is physical death. This is the death started in the garden. On the day you eat it from that tree, you will die. So what's this business about the devil having the power of death? Does that mean that Satan is the one who can kill you? 
So on Sunday in our home fellowship, we, uh, we had a great discussion about nuance. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, learn how to think carefully with some nuance to, to realize things that appear on the surface to be contradictory are not necessarily contradictory. They may just be coming from different perspectives. We don't use words exactly the same way all the time, right? So here, here's the point. Does Satan have the power of death? Well, in some instances, it seems so. Have you read Job lately? Remember that interchange between God and Job? And uh, God says, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's, he's faithful to me. He's righteous. He's loyal. And Job says, well, of course, because you've given him everything. Life is easy. Life is good for him. And God says, all right, you can do whatever you want to him. Just you can't touch his body. Well, next thing you know, not only is all of his property gone, but his children are dead through storms and through uh, other you know, hostile nations, uh, little, little, uh, little kingdoms coming in and killing them. Marauders, I guess, more. And then later God says, you provoked me against him. Satan, you provoked me against Job. So the question is, did Satan kill Job's kids or did God? Uh, kind of both, it seems. We don't know exactly. We're told that God has numbered our days, right? God's in ultimate control of all things. So does it mean the devil can kill you? Maybe, but only if God allows it, right? It ha everything has to pass through his sovereignty. But I don't think that's the emphasis here. Maybe, it might be. But notice the next verse here, verse 15, that he might free, that Jesus, through his own death, might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. Slavery. So I think that's where the, the real focus comes. Whether or not Satan actually has the ability to take our life, or when that might be, he certainly can tempt us to sin, and for the Jews especially, can create fear of death and, and work through other people to bring persecution, which can bring fear. And that's what's going on with these people. Remember the context. These are Jewish converts to Christianity, and they are now suffering. They are living life in the fear of death. The persecutors are turning up the heat, and these people are afraid of dying. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, Keep your eyes focused on our champion. His path to glory was through death. Death is not the worst thing to happen to you. Do not be afraid. And that's where Satan can really do some damage is through fear of death. How many people have compromised things that they formerly held true in order to avoid death? Think about the crazy things people will do today because they think it will hold off death. So 
that can be a real enslavement. If your greatest concern is to preserve your life, and we talk about having this uh, sort of survival instinct, right? We'll do anything we can to fight against that which threatens our life. To the degree that that's true, it's a powerful force if someone can convince you that they are about to kill you. Our Lord himself, on his way to the cross, told his disciples, don't fear the one that can kill the body, but then can do nothing with the soul. Fear the one who, after the body is dead, can cast your soul into the fire. Right? That's the perspective. But if we don't have that perspective, then our greatest concern is who's going to take our life. We have to avoid that at all costs. So I think that's what's going on here. Those who are afraid of dying and therefore they are enslaved, if their whole life is lived in fear of dying, the devil can exercise great mastery over that person. But Jesus, the Messiah, died. And of course, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And therefore, we can say we're on the same path as him. Death is not the end for us. Resurrection is on the other side of death. So, devil, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not going to be enslaved to this fear. Even if God allows you to raise up people to take my life, I know how this ends. I win. You lose. You could see how someone who's under threat of persecution would be encouraged by these words. Jesus faced death but he didn't abandon his devotion to God, his father. The writer goes on, for assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Uh, the word help, that, that's a very bad translation. This is not give help. This is takes hold of. The Greek is takes hold of. He, he does not take hold of angels. Remember, he's been comparing human uh, uh, Jesus to angels all the way through. And he's using that again. The Messiah came and he didn't take hold of angels. In other words, he didn't take hold of the nature of angels. He took hold of the nature of the seed of Abraham, humans. He came for humans. He came for the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Now, if you know the book of Hebrews, you see what he's doing here. He is opening up. He's, he's laying the verbal foundation for something he is going to expound on in great detail later in the letter. Jesus is the high priest. We have a high priest. The Jews claimed to have a high priest, and they did, right? That's part of the old covenant. And you can see what the Jews would do with that. Hey, you... Mr. Christian, now that you've left Judaism, how do you get access to God? How are you going to get to God? You don't have a high priest. You've abandoned this covenant where God himself set up the high priest and the temple so you can get to the temple and, and get into God through the high priest. And the writer of Hebrews says, oh, oh, you don't understand. Oh, we have a high priest who is far superior 
to your descendant of Aaron. So we have a high priest. We have the Messiah, the Son of God, who joined us in the human race. He had to be made like his brothers as a human just so that he could be the high priest. And he will go on and say, he doesn't go into this temple in Jerusalem. He goes into the heavenly temple, the actual throne room of God. But alas, I'm getting ahead of the story. (laughs) But that's where he's going with this, right? And then he adds this, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This again is going to be a significant part of his argument down the road. Propitiation is not a word that we use in everyday language. My guess is you haven't used that word. Some of you maybe ever, (laughs) you maybe have to practice pronouncing it. Propitiation, propitiation. And some of you may may not ever say that word. Uh, I don't know, do your other translations, I'm using the NAS, uh, do, do your other translations use propitiation or do they say something like atonement or atoning sacrifice? I'm curious. Uh, let me know if just if just put in the comments here. Does your translation say propitiation? Uh, say yes or no, and then your translation. It's a very important word. Atonement doesn't quite capture it. Atonement only covers one side of what this word means. Emma says, "Never heard of it." Uh, does your Does your translation say atonement, Emma, or something like that? Atoning sacrifice. So. I'm not going to take the time here to unpack all of this, but to be propitious means to be favorable toward, to have a favorable posture toward, okay? If you and I are at odds and we want to be reconciled, then we need to make each other propitious toward each other. If you have offended me and I'm upset at you and you care about the relationship, then you you need to make me propitious toward you. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm hostile toward you. You've offended me. I'm hostile toward you. I'm not propitious. I don't have a favorable attitude toward you, so to speak. I need you. You need to make me propitious in some way. And that could be through asking forgiveness, that kind of thing, right? The idea here is, notice what it says, he's our faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, and then he gives this explanation, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, what is it that has made us hostile in God's eyes? Why is God hostile toward us? It's because of our sins. That goes all the way back to the origin of death in the garden, right? The devil tempts Adam and Eve to sin against God. God shows up and Adam and Eve run and hide because they know the penalty is death. They're ashamed and they're afraid. Rightfully so. They've sinned against God. He is not propitious toward them. He's not favorable toward them. He's angry. And that's what we see played out through the entire Old Testament. The law was given to Israel, and the consequences of disobedience were God's wrath and judgment. God was angry 
at the sinning Jew. Remember when God reveals himself to, uh, to Moses? When, uh, when he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he puts his hand and lets his hindward parts go past him, he proclaims his name and he talks about his grace and mercy and compassion. And he says, but I will by no means let the guilty go unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. Remember later on when uh, Moses, uh, w- when, when Israel builds the golden calf and, and God says, step aside, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and I'll start a new nation with you. And Moses pleads and begs and, and kind of barters with God. And God says, okay, I won't kill them now, but on the day that I punish, I will punish. The Psalms say God is furious with the, the, the sinner every day. He's not favorable towards sinners. He needs to be made propitious. How is that possible? Well, it's only possible through our high priest who became human so that he could die for us. And what that looks like, what that means, is going to be laid out later on in Hebrews in great detail. If you want to get a head start on it, go back and really dissect Leviticus chapter 16. The day of atonement, as we often think of it, the day of propitiation, was this great ceremony where the two goats, whenever you see the word two, whenever you see the word propitiation, if you really understand Luke 16 or Leviticus 16, you're going to think two goats. And I'll explain that to you down the road. The goats pointed toward Christ as the means of propitiation so that God would no longer be angry at sinners, but now would be favorable, propitious toward them. Kind of like Romans 5, uh, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. While he was hostile against us, Christ died for us so that God wouldn't be angry at us anymore, but would love us and, and would be favorable toward us. That's all wrapped up in this word propitiation. All right, last thing. I got to do this quickly, but we'll come back to it next week. Verse 18, four, since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, we like to use this passage to think, you know, a guy is tempted to porn. Jesus understands that temptation or you're tempted to lose your temperature spouse. And Jesus was tempted with all things. And we'll see that repeated here a little bit later. Yes, but the real focus, keep it in its context. Again, the focus is on temptation to give up in face of death. Remember Jesus's battle in the garden of Gethsemane as death was approaching. He was tempted to step away from the course he was on going to the cross. He was tempted, but he overcame that temptation and he stayed true and faithful even to the point of death on the cross. And the writer of Hebrews is setting up that example for us, especially for the first century audience here. Do not drift away from the gospel and the new covenant, even in the face of death. Your faithful high priest, Jesus, can come alongside and encourage you. He knows the temptation and he stood firm. Be like him. It's the path to glory. So we'll come back and talk more about that uh, next week. Let me, uh, I see a comment here. Let me, let me look at this comment. Uh, Lon says, why do some say Jesus descended to hell and was separated from God? Isn't this spiritual death? Uh, great question. Yeah, that's even in uh, some forms of the, uh, the creed, the Apostles' Creed, right? 
or Nicene Creed, I forget now, which um, they say that because of what Peter wrote, and it's based on a, a mistranslation. It doesn't say he went to hell. He went to proclaim to the spirits in prison. And uh, I don't have time now to get into that, but I think, huh, how can I even address this without taking time? Um, I think what's being said there is on Saturday between his death and resurrection, so he died on Friday and rose on Sunday, I think during Saturday, and I'm, I'm sort of being facetious there, I obviously don't know what day it was, but at, at death before the resurrection, I think Jesus went and proclaimed victory over demons that were imprisoned back in Genesis. So he didn't go there. He didn't die, but he went by the Spirit to proclaim victory over these angels who had left their proper abode and deceived people back in Genesis 6 time period. That's, I know, that opens up a whole can of words. We'll talk about that sometime, but uh, I don't think the text says meant at all that Jesus went to hell. That that made its way into some of the creed translations, but I think it's a poor translation and totally misunderstands the context of uh, 1 Peter 3. So some, sometime we'll take a look at that, um, but I think that's what's going on here. All right, friends, I got to go. Uh, have a great day. Uh, fellas, tomorrow's Friday. Friday with the fellas. We keep talking about manhood. And uh, for you gals, join us back here on Monday at a new time, 1130 Eastern, and we will continue looking at Hebrews. Have a great day and or weekend. See you all down the road. Take care.